Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, with that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our discussion today, uh, we want to say thanks for the questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Dale H., Peter S., Cindy W., Miska K., and Todd A. So today we are talking with Alex Holmes, CEO of Plateau Energy Metals, a uranium and lithium-focused developer with projects in Peru. The company is listing on the Toronto Venture Exchange under symbol PLU, and also in the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol PLUUF. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. So, Alex, uh, give us your background, uh, going back with your time with True Gold and your work at Oxygen Capital. Sure, thank you. Um, well, so I'll even step back a little bit farther than that. Um, I spent about 10 years in investment banking and uh, through that process gravitated towards the, the mining side. So uh, I've been involved in a number of transactions from, from financings to growth M&A and and, and ultimate takeout transactions. And along the way, um, uh, you know, forged a very strong relationship with um, a good group of, um, of, of mining professionals. And one of that group was uh, Marco Day's uh, group. Uh, had great success with Frontier Gold among one of the successes. And uh, in, a, in late 2011, I actually uh, left the investment banking side and, and joined Mark and uh, Mark and myself and, and two other founders, uh, we formed uh, Oxygen Capital as a, uh, an incubator house, having some shared services, uh, but really bringing together some really strong professionals from the technical and financial world. And uh, what we did was we built uh, four companies uh, over a five-year period. Um, one of those, which was um, a very recent success, was True Gold Mining, and that was actually a merger between... Uh, effectively a management team with some capital and, and a company looking for capital and, and to bolster strength. And that was a, a PEA, a preliminary economic stage uh, gold asset in, in West Africa that we took from that to gold production, actually, in a very challenging gold market over about a three and a half year period. Um, so right through feasibility, we grew the resource by 50%. We got it permitted, we project financed it, um, built a construction team and had over a thousand employees at one point and uh, ultimately led to, to gold production in April 2016. And then that was acquired by Endeavor Mining. And, uh, and my role there was on the business development side, working very closely with uh, Mark, who was executive chairman, and, um, and, and the management team. And uh, along the way, we also had other companies, other successes like Pure Gold, um, which is in Red Lake, Ontario, gold asset. But that was really um, a big part of kind of honing my skill set in and and, uh, and getting me ready for uh, being able to, um, to bring my skill set to the table to take companies like Plateau with a PEA stage uranium project and an advanced exploration lithium project uh, through those various milestones of, of uh, you know, value creation and sourcing capital and the team and moving them through those various uh, de-risking events. Okay. So, Alex, why did you come to Plateau? And tell us what value proposition you see with the company. Yeah, I came to Plateau. I was uh, approached by a couple of, um, of directors uh, earlier in 2000, 
18. And um, when I looked at the opportunity, I, I peeled back the layers of the onion. And you know, from my oxygen days, we looked at you know, literally hundreds of projects. So I had a good uh, background in being able to assess you know, the value of projects. And what I saw was actually two projects. Um, the new lithium discovery was had been advancing very rapidly. It was very interesting. Um, clearly, we had you know there was work cut out for it to uh, to move it forward into to an economic study. And the uranium project, which at the time earlier 2018, there really wasn't a lot of buzz around uranium at that point. Um, but it created this. It showed for me an underpinning of value um, to to support the company. And so I saw, for me, I saw a very clear kind of at least three-year time horizon where we could move both assets forward. Um, and the lithium project had the potential to be of a scale that would put it in, in, in the top five or ten projects globally. And, and today it's actually already in the top ten size-wise. Uh, we have our work cut out for us to, to move it through to that economic study, which we're targeting the end of uh, the first half of this year. And our uranium project... Uh, you know, funnily enough, the sentiment around uranium started to to move around the middle of last year, and has actually only got stronger for a variety of reasons. And um, but actually, that combined with our lithium project, you know, really showed me that there was a big opportunity here to um, to try to unlock the value that that you know wasn't getting recognized at the time. So you've been around the world in various mining projects from Africa to Canada. Why has Peru become your focus? Uh, well, uh, sometimes it's it's it project merit driven as much as anything. Um, you know the the technical aspects of the project, um, but Peru itself, Peru is is a mining jurisdiction. It's um, there's a lot of foreign investment. Mining's part of the culture. Mining's really been part of the culture for hundreds of years. Um, but there's some very large companies there, and it's uh, you know a top copper producer globally. Um, a lot of gold production and uh, other metals and minerals that um, you know really mean that that mining as it, what it means to Peru is that it's a big part of its GDP and foreign investment is key for that and it also means there's lots of skilled labor there. So when I look at a project, uh, I don't only want to look at the technical merits of it, but I want to look at uh, the merits of can you actually build this and are there access to skilled labor and is the infrastructure good and is there um, you know, government support for, for mining generally and, and in particular in our projects? And, and I, I walked away with the view and having had experience in financing companies in Peru that um, there's a longstanding uh, you know, support for mining in that country. Okay. So give us a, a snapshot of the company in terms of management team, uh, the compensation <clears throat> of management, share structure, and uh, who are the major shareholders? Yeah, so uh, well, let's start with the project. So we're in southeastern Peru. We we fly about an hour and a half from uh, the capital city of Lima, multiple flights a day. And once we land at uh, a place called Juliaca, we're about a three and a half hour drive up a two lane paved highway right to our project site. Uh, we have a hydroelectric power down about 40 kilometers away as the crow flies. Uh, there's excess capacity there. There's a high voltage transmission line. Uh, there's there's water, plentiful water available in the area, and there's ports. So it really checks the boxes when it comes down to infrastructure. When you look at it from a, the ability to actually build a mine in an area, um, our two projects are actually on the same land package. So the overall land package is about 930 square kilometers. Uh, Plateau has actually been working in the area for about 10 years, and the reason I mention that is it's a big part of maintaining uh, those community relations. A key part of 
of any mining company is is we're really the guests and uh, and we're being hosted by the local communities. But being there 10 years and continually working through that, we've been able to build up some some great trust and strengths in that regard. Um, so within, within our land package, within that 930 square kilometer land package, the uranium project is actually the genesis of the company, and that came together over uh, a period of a few years and was expanded by by the uh, by the, the geological team. And that's about 124 million pounds of uranium in, in 43101 resource categories, uh, which is quite significant globally. And then within that, there's been an economic project scoped out of about 70 million pounds. So 10-year mine, roughly 6 million pounds a year. Capital, initial capital-wise is very financeable, and uh, cash cost-wise um, puts it competitively on the, on the world stage of development projects. And then if we go about 25 kilometers to the southwest, we've got our Falchani Lithia project. And there seems to be a bit of a misunderstanding out there that the lithium project and the uranium project are one and the same, but geographically they're about 25 kilometers apart. So completely different. And, um, and uh, like I said, all within the same, same land package. And there was a first resource from discovery. The first resource was about nine months. It's uh, approximately 2.4 million tons of lithium carbonate equivalent. Uh, that puts it um, in a very in, a, in quite a nice spot in terms of being between two and three million tons. And what we decided as I came in last year, I joined in August. And as we said, let's let's continue exploring. We know it expands out to the west. We stepped out to the west. We drilled. We hit. We've announced these results, and we continue to drill right through to the end of the year, expanding what we already knew was happening east of there. And the reason we wanted to do that is one, it gave us some flexibility when we think about mine planning but b it's going to put us into a place where there's not a lot of projects of this size and scale um, and that's a good place to be when we control 100 percent of it so that's our projects we look at our, our board and, and management team um, i've given you a bit of background on myself uh, one of our co-founders is, is lawrence stefan he's our coo he's ex big company uh, guy from south africa so anglo goldfields uh, jci and he's been in peru for about 20 years and he's helped assemble our team, which is largely Peruvian, um, our general manager there is, is Peruvian, he's a lawyer by background, uh, speaks the local dialect in the communities we work in, which is really goes a long way. Uh, again, like I say, we go back to the, the importance of community relations for any mining project. Um, we have a strong board that has cross-section of people with uranium experience, uh, people with operations experience and, and finance experience. Um, you know, I think it's always important to not only have people that have, have, have done things on the desktop or been only involved in the public market space, but have actually had boots on the ground and, and built projects and operated them. So we had a great cross section on the board that way. Um, in terms of compensation, it's actually a, we're a fairly skinny team. So um, I have myself and our COO, we have a, a part-time CFO and our team in Peru. And for the most part, the team in Peru is, is more or less it's 100% project focused. Um, so we run a fairly low G&A budget where about 80% of our budget is all project specific. Uh, 20% is between, um, you know, corporate overhead and, and the cost of being public with exchange fees and things like that. So I think it's, it's quite competitive that way because um, you'd, you'd ask a, a question about compensation. Um, I come from a camp where, where you know, culturally, uh, we're not looking for employees, we're looking for owners, which means uh, we really try to align equity incentives uh, rather than cash incentive uh, with our not only our management group, but up and down uh, the organization. 
so uh, we do focus on uh, on options and people being shareholders. Um, we're about 10% insider ownership. Uh, for a company that's been, been around 10 years, that's actually quite quite positive. That's quite good. We, we don't often see that. Uh, me, myself, I came in in um, May of this year, or sorry, of last year, uh, at 60 cents, and, uh, and I participated again in the last financing, which was down at 95 cents Canadian. And... Um, and then if we look outside of that, and the rest of our share registry, uh, we have some very strong uh, high net worth individuals um, based here in Vancouver. And uh, they're, 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 they're brokers and themselves together with their, their broker clients are roughly 35% of our company. And we have some institutional ownership, uh, roughly about 12%. It's an area I'm, I'm working on since I, I joined because the company didn't have a whole lot of institutional ownership prior to that. And, you know, really a big part of that was um, it wasn't that long ago that, that nobody really cared about uranium, and so there wasn't a large institutional shareholder base for that reason. And lithium, uh, the discovery was new, and it was happening at a time when the sentiment around lithium was shifting uh, in late 2017. So really, this never got the attention it deserved um, from from the broader capital markets and the institutions. So since joining, we've been able to add some institutional shareholders to the base, We've been able to have two analysts publish research reports on us, uh, Haywood Securities and Eight Capital. Uh, Haywood at about a $3 target price and uh, Eight Capital at 270 target price. Um, they look at our asset base and they, they say it's roughly 50-50 in terms of that value makeup. Um, so, you know, we have our, our work cut out for us about getting out there, uh, continuing to uh, meet with, you know, long-term sticky shareholders, institutions, uh, looking for some more research coverage from 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 institutional groups that understand you know the value proposition of our assets. Well, I appreciate the uh, the overview on everything there. Um, what's how many shares are out right now? Seventy six point nine million shares. So, are there any near term plans to get on the TSX big board or maybe upgrade the OTC listing to a QX status? Um. Well, I haven't considered uh, the QX status. Um, as I'm sure you can imagine, the first few months in the hot seat has been um, there's been a lot of things to, to focus on. Uh, I'd like to get up to the TSX big board at some point, and um, part of that is it's a um, as much a you know documentation and application process as anything. So um, right. certainly we're we're doing things to. Um, bring ourselves in line with being TSX eligible. The timing of that, I can't, uh, I can't comment on. And going back to the QX, I really, to be honest, I haven't given it much thought. And um, it'd be interested to hear whether that's actually uh, something that investors um, place a lot of value on in the U.S. Yeah, I think, I think the QX is pretty simple to get. You're already QB, so it's not too hard to get up a little higher there. And then the, the TSX big board obviously makes sense when sentiment is improved and Maybe in a rising uranium price environment, uh, perhaps a little little more confirmation before you get too excited about TSX. But uh, yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. a good idea. Um, so the Peru government, uh, when when do you expect they'll have uranium export regulations in place, and what do you see as a logistics route for for the project? Uh, what what port is designated for uranium export, and is there a vessel route for Class Seven cargo uh, coming through there? Um, so maybe I'll start answering that question with um, just to make sure that we clear up what I think is a bit of a misunderstanding out there because I think it's um, 
it probably hasn't been messaged, you know, accurately. So you 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 properly quoted it, but it's a it's a transport and export regulation that's not in place. So under the general mining law in, in Peru, we can we can mine and produce uh, uranium, um, but that's not going to do us much good if we can't transport it to port and export it to conversion facility. So in August of last year, uh, the president of Peru came out and say that said that the Ministry of Energy Mines is working on a, um, a legal framework for this, and we will have it in place within six months. So that would take us to February, and uh, I'm optimistic, but I think February might be a little bit soon for that. But what I can say is we've been working closely with the Ministry of Energy Mines and obviously lobbying efforts throughout time to show that, we, um, that we've got a project of merit here. Um, this is actually significant as it plays a role for Peru in being part of a, a clean energy 24-7 stable energy supply source being being nuclear power. Um, and the government understands that. The government's a founding member of the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is something you have to be a member of that agency in order to be able to uh, produce, transport, and export uranium. So that's a positive. They have a research reactor in the country, which is mainly medical uh, isotope-based, um, but again, a positive because it means they have an independent nuclear uh, agency. And what we what we are aware of is the government is effectively looking at all the frameworks that Canada, the U.S., Australia, et cetera, have in place already as uranium uh, producing and exporting nations and effectively pulling together the, the, the best of the best. So they're not having to start from scratch. Um, so I think it's very positive. We have presidential level support and as well as ministerial and uh, independent uh, nuclear agency level support. And... In terms of where we would um, transport the material, I mean, that's yet to be finally determined, but uh, we have three ports that are within about 400 kilometers of our project, which uh, 400 kilometers, uh, call it 300 miles, um, is uh, is not actually that far. Um, one of the ports, the port of Elo, is actually quite an active port um, with uh, there, there, there's a lot of exports that go through that port. And then we would look at uh, various offtake partners. So we identify the conversion facilities this is ultimately go to so that it can be converted into a uh, energy uh, fuel product for reactors. So the key thing to bear in mind is the transport and export legal framework is all related to um, the secure supply chain in essence, because the International Atomic Energy Agency monitors projects globally and uh, you need to be able to monitor that supply chain from a project site to the port and from the port to the conversion facility. So it knows that it's going, which end buyers it's going to effectively. Right. I hope that yeah, answers the uh, question. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the info on that and, and clarifying it. Uh, I think it makes sense if you can, you know, cut and paste an existing framework that is robust and works well, there's no point in reinventing the wheel. Um, hmm. So, so on the on on the subject of government, so there, as you as you know, there's a new regional governor uh, that's been elected in, in Puno region where the project is, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Aduveri, um, if I pronounce his name right. He's he's had a history of being a little bit tough on mining projects. Uh, reference uh, Bear Creek's Santa Ana project. How does Plateau plan to meet the demands from local communities? and established a sound relation with the new governor to advance the project. So what is the plan for kind of getting the hearts and minds on board? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's a great question. So it, it is, it's um, uh, Walter Eddyberry, 
uh, is his name. So he was elected regional governor uh, last year and came into office on January 1st. Um, as you mentioned, Walter was uh, involved with some protests. Um, it's, I believe, not only against the project that the, the Bear Creek had, but, it, but ultimately Bear Creek's project was part of that. Um, you know, that project is a region of Peru. It's um, quite a ways from where our project is. We're in the highlands, right. and this is in, considered the lowlands, um, but it was much closer to the Bolivian border. Um, so there's lots of lots of things I'm sure you can imagine trade-wise that happen near the borders, um, uh, legal and illegal. And, you know, depends on, on who you talk to, but there, I'm sure there's, there is some um, element of uh, the, the location of the project that came into play and the presence of the government coming, coming closer to some of that activity. Um, what I can say about Walter Adeguri is, you know, when we look at his uh, political platform that he became elected on, uh, he uh, was elected regional governor on a platform of economic development for the area. So um, Peru is broken up into departments, and the Department of Puno is the region that, uh, that Walter Adeguri is, is governor of. Um, he, uh, he was elected on this economic prosperity platform because the Department of Puno is a quite a poor, um, call it a have-not uh, department, if you will. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, and part of that is because the way the structure of, um, of, of uh, tax um, flows and money flows in country, how it works is departments, uh, any businesses, industries, agriculture, fishery, um, mining, etc., all the tax revenues flow into the central government, into Lima, and then get redistributed back out to the departments based on contribution. And so if, you're a, if you happen to be a department that doesn't have a lot of large um, industries supporting economic development, then you're not going to get much money back. So right. within his platform, what do you, you know, a couple of key things he's looking for are improved sanitation and water for sanitation, improved water access for agricultural use, uh, education, nutrition, things like literacy and math and, and, and nutrition. Um, he'd like to uh, formalize um, artisanal mining, uh, which actually isn't anything new. Artisanal mining is something that Peru's been, you know, formalizing over a period of time here. And this is, when I say artisanal mining, this is really small scale, often applied to gold, um, right. and generally high-grade gold. Um, when it comes to large industries, uh, within his platform, he said we have to support large industrial uh, projects, large agriculture, large mining. Um, you know, because as, as a good politician recognizes, you need, uh, you need um, revenue generation to be able to create jobs. You need to support industry to create jobs, and you need uh, revenue generation to have money flow back in to be able to do things like uh, work on things like healthcare and education, et cetera. So, you know, Walter's never been, or sorry, Mr. Adagiri's never been a, um, uh, a politician before, so I think he's kind of um, you know, getting his feet wet. Um, he uh, he's um, came out and actually he invited us to meet with him in, in Lima, in Peru, when he came to meet in with, with the federal central government. Um, asked to meet with us, and, and to my knowledge, one of the only companies he asked to meet with. And he he said to us, uh, you know, I wanted to make some introductions. I've been out to the communities in your area. You truly have uh, a lot of community support for your projects. Uh, therefore, I'm in support of your project. And he invited us in to come make a presentation on our project uh, in 2019 once he was in office. And, 
so I think that's a really good sign of uh, start of a, a productive relationship. Um, but you know, obviously, the good news doesn't always get out into the Western world, um, and uh, you know, I think um, he's, he's he's got a lot to to focus on as he's in office, and um, he's surrounded himself with um, his advisors recently and appointed them, and um, you know, some of them are very familiar with mining and and, and how it works, and I think. Any regional governor, any politician, at the end of the day, the key is, is it good for the people? And are we creating jobs? Are we creating economic stimulus? Is it going to help me achieve what I said uh, I would like to achieve as part of my political platform? So, Right. Um, I, think it's, I think it's good. I, you, uh, you know, he's only been in office for 10, 10 days, more or less, and so... I'm sure that a meeting is, is forthcoming again um, as you guys continue to do your work. Uh, so it, is it fair to say that uh, maybe some of the community outreach programs could be geared towards, you know, water treatment, uh, sanitation, uh, some education programs uh, from coming coming from Plateau as, as you guys advance towards a development? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there's nothing I'd like more than um, – to be able to, and, and again, as you say, as we advance through development, because as we advance through development, more capital becomes available, which allows us to, um, you know, add to our social programs we already have. Um, but uh, doing a socioeconomic impact assessment is obviously part of uh, the process of involving the project, and that will really help us identify where the job creation opportunities are, where the training opportunities are, um, and, you know, I'm... I am a big believer that with responsible mining, you can help um, build communities. And when I look at our two projects, uh, in particular our lithium one, um, we're, we're looking at a scale that could be a multi-generational asset. And you can really build build some strong communities um, and sustainable economic development when you have things that, you know, assets that last beyond kind of the conventional 10, 15 years, and you're talking 20, 30, 40, 50 years plus. Um, some of the programs we're already doing, um, because I think, you know, I, I'm a, I would love to be able to look at the educational piece, the nutritional piece, and, and not as we are working with um, uh, University of Huliaka, we've had conversations about ideas and, you know, at the stages of trying to generate some of those ideas of where where can we be helpful. Um, it's, there's very little point in us coming out and saying, hey, this, this is what we think will be helpful. It's better for us to listen and then see how we can be part of that. Um, but some of the programs we've been doing in the past is, is um, uh, we support uh, a milk program so at the school. So for the kids to be able to get you know, calcium and, and have some proper milk, we, we sponsor bringing in milk. Um, we, we've recently started something, I think it was about Q3 last year. Um, we, got it, we were able to find some sewing machines and we refurbished them. And then we, we worked with the women in the village area and show them how to maintain them. And they're using those now for uh, taking the, the wool from the llamas, right? Some of that, that high value alpaca wool and they're actually creating clothes out of it. And then what we did is we've gone a step farther and we've actually connected them with a the market in Lima. So um, we're actually just working on a, a bit of a video to be able to show that. But to be able to connect them from something that's part of their livelihood, being the, the wool creation, and this is, you know, alpaca wool is very high value wool, and to be able to create, you know, sweaters and scarves and hats and things, and then have it go to market in Lima um, and be sold. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you can see last generations that are that are sustainable 
and um, and so yeah, we're we're doing things, and I think it's 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 the right amount of work for the stage of company we're at, and obviously we'll look to expand that as we we evolve. Great. Well, I appreciate the information on that. Um, so so moving on, uh, what's what's the status of uranium supply agreements at Plateau? What do you have in place with with uh, Corzon Resources, and are you nearing a deal with anyone else? I, I just wanted to follow up with the announcement that happened, I believe, uh, was in 2017 that you guys had some kind of an agreement in place potentially uh, when you go to production. What, what's the status on that? Because we haven't heard anything about that since. Yeah, um, I uh, so as part of my due diligence, I'm sure you can imagine I came across that. So I can say that that agreement lapsed. I think um, uh, say there wasn't a lot of meat on the bone on that agreement. Probably the best way to put it. Um, but it did show there's interest in in a in a product at the end of the day. Um, so part of 2019 will be um, reengaging with those conversations with with off takers. Um, what we're seeing in the uranium space as a whole, because I think it's important to bear this in mind, is is uh, we've got supply last year, I think, of somewhere roughly 130, 140 million pounds against demand of roughly 190 to 195 million pounds. And that delta was taken up largely in the spot market or through some strategic inventories. Um, but we've got Japan turning on reactors and, and somewhere around three, four years of supply is, is what we understand. Um, U.S. demanding about 50 million pounds a year and, and argue, arguably getting low in the next couple of years in, in Europe, of course, and, and China. And so we've got a, a product that in production, we've got a product that's very clean and high, high purity. And, um, and so we'll be using 2019 to go out and engage with some of these bigger players. Um, I'm not very familiar with Curzon, but certainly meeting with, with you know, the Japanese trading groups and the U.S. trading groups and and, and having conversations with them about um, about potential offtake. Often, uh, you know, because we're not an established producer, um, you know, the offtake will look a little bit different than an established producer would take in the sense of longevity and things like that. Uh, more because the offtake wants to see you, you know, deliver on the product that you, that you say you have. Um, and it's, it's sort of an evolving relationship basis. So I know that... Um, one of our directors, Ted O'Connor, he's uh, he's uh, a technical advisor with us. He's 20 years with Chemical, uh, has a lot of relationships across the spectrum of off-takers. So Ted and I have an effort, uh, you know, kind of Q2, Q3 leading into um, re-engaging with some of those conversations. And certainly the right time to do that now because, uh, you know, up until seven, eight months ago, um, there really wasn't much life in your radio. Right. Yeah, and, and with, with 232 going on in the U.S. and some other things that are starting to play out, uh, production cuts, of course, and, and so forth, I think it's a, mm-hmm. a good time to be looking at that. And you guys, you know, an offtake, offtake would be a nice piece of the puzzle to to get the financing to uh, to put this thing uh, into construction and so forth. So, yeah, we're, we're excited to see what will happen on that front. And uh, you certainly, with, with Ted there, you have a good uh, lead into that uh, kind of opaque a group of utilities around the world that are a little bit odd to get to and, and deal with their procurement. Um, so uh, moving on to another question. Uh, so so Ian Stocker, your chairman, uh, he ended up mm-hmm. selling during the last cycle of Uriman uh, discoveries in Namibia and Niger to Arriva mm-hmm. for, I don't know, it was, it was north of $2 billion in uh, 2007. So 
on on that case, are you guys is is there are you guys looking at offers uh, to take to take the project? Would that come? And and are you guys also focused corely on uh, going after a development scenario? Well, I think it's important in um, when you're building any business is 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 you build it, and you make decisions. Um, sorry, you evolve the business and you make decisions to build the project. If right. you solely focus on scoping out a project to sell it, then you're going to run yourself into some problems, and usually because the decision matrix is different. So certainly, we're building a team around a team that um, that can ultimately build the project. Having said that, um, I do believe uh, the case for a uranium asset um, that this is a next cycle uranium producer. Um, it certainly that has the merits of that. It's financeable. It's got all the right economic metrics to be able to suggest that. And it's got the scale and size to be attractive to, um, to you know, some of the bigger players out there, the more, the more developed companies. So, uh, you know, I, I, hopefully that answers from a perspective of you, you need to build a team to be able to make it happen. Otherwise, you get left behind and you make different decisions. Right. Um, but because of the scale and size of this project um, and, and the economic profile of it, I think it's going to be attractive to to a number of parties at the right time, and so you know we'll we'll consider those um, as as we evolve. Yes, yes, and, and I just would note that with with True Gold, you guys were months months away from pouring first gold, and Endeavor came along uh, after you guys had basically already were what ninety five percent complete on the project, and so I think it's important to you know plan for the worst uh, development. And uh, a suitor might just come along, just like True Gold. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fair comment. Um, so, so uh, I, we get this question a lot about production. Uh, when do you believe realistically uh, Plateau will actually see production? Do you see it as maybe a, at this point, with all the stages left to go, uh, do you see it as like a 2024 uh, production scenario, or, or what do you think on that? Uh, for our uranium project? Yes. Um, well, we've been doing some internal planning, and uh, we had, if we had the capital today, so assume we had the capital today, we could take our uranium project feasibility study within 18 months. Um, and uh, because so much work has been done in the past on the project, and then through permitting. So we're running a parallel path on our environmental impact assessment, which uh, we think will take us, if we could do uh, with the environmental impact assessment, and the project going through feasibility study, roughly around 24 months, we think we'll have a feasible feasibility stage project that's that's permitted or near near fully permitted. Excuse me, and um, and then from there you'd have a build cycle of of, of a year, year and a bit, and so you know sort of three and a half three and a half years uh, we could potentially be in production, um, and you know that's uh, lining up everything perfectly and project finance coming through on time and all of these all of these things, but three and a half to four years wouldn't be unreasonable. Okay. So, so everybody kind of talks, you know, we get here a lot of cash cost, cash cost, this and different costs. What, what is really realistically give us, and I know you guys haven't done the pre-visibility, so it's a ballpark, but give us a rough figure for the all in sustaining cost per pound uranium uh, at, at Macusani. Sure. Um, well, we're, Cash cost is about seventeen, just a little over seventeen dollars. And if we take cash cost plus um, total life of mine capex, we're about twenty-five dollars a pound. 
So our, our NPV break-even is 25 a pound. Um, we are doing some optimization work that um, were part of some earlier stage studies that, uh, that, that Ted and Lawrence had done um, within the last couple of years. Um, the budget wasn't there to run them fully to ground. But those optimization programs, we're looking at can we pre-concentrate the material? So effectively what that means is can we ultimately um, uh, pre-concentrate the ore so that we're processing less material, which has a benefit in terms of um, the capital and operating costs associated per pound of uranium? And can we look at a modified processing approach, which could benefit us on the recovery and the, the timing of, um, of, of producing the LK product? So if you look at 25, I think it puts that $25 all in, that puts it at a very competitive level um, amongst the developers out there today. Um, and then if we if we have some wins on that optimization work, then we could be looking at an even better scenario. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, and and when you say the, the pre-concentration, are you looking at these uh, various, various technologies that are, that are available to kind of uh, – obviously reduce the ore before it comes in for processing. Is that what you're, you're meaning there? Yeah. So there was some work in 2013, I believe it was by chemical because chemical used to own part of this project. So in 2013, they had done some work on pre-concentration and they had shown that 85% of the uranium sits in 50% of the material. And then there was some work done. Um, you guys had engaged an external consultant, um, who's got a background in pre-concentration. This was desktop work, and they, they looked at the mineralogy and came away with the, basically a similar question, supporting Chemical's view um, that Chemical's work had shown. And so what we'll do now is we take it to an independent lab test with a sample, and, and they run through and, and determine. We're not looking at using anything unique. We're, we're, we're focusing on can we pre-concentrate this on a conventional standard approach. Um, and, yeah, as you say, it's, it's about... You know, throwing away the material that doesn't have, you know, uranium mineralization and, and concentrating more in the material it does. And then okay. you put that through the process plant, uh, but you'd be putting a lower volume through. So it's a, arguably a more efficient, sustainable way of mining, too. Right. So uh, just a couple more questions on uranium before we move on to lithium. So uh, moving outside of the project, moving on, kind of looking at a global view, uh, are there any other uranium businesses, uh, Alex, that you like at this point? Um, well, I, I mean, I can't uh, can't go without mentioning NGX um, in the Athabasca Basin. I mean, that truly is a, a fantastic project. Um, it's got great and production profile on the side, and, and obviously Canada has a, a pretty big producer, contributor to the uranium production picture. So I certainly like that one. That's uh, somewhere around a $900 million, uh, market cap, I believe. In your mind, what is the biggest hurdle for uranium prices to kind of start their push higher? Yeah, it's a, a good question. Well, I think um, we had a couple of false starts in 14 and 17 on, on uranium spot, and they pulled back, and I believe they're roughly around six months run. So we're we're six months into spot moving from arguably 20-ish to 29 or, or so today. It seems to be hanging in there. I think what we need to see to really – you know, nail at home that, that, that this is part of a, a new commodities run is um, some new term contracts being signed um, at, at higher than spot. I think 232 needs to needs to 
come through and, and from various parties that I speak to, their view is that the U.S. utilities aren't going to sign new offtakes and new term contracts until they know the outcome of 232, because that may dictate where they have to source their material from. Um, so my understanding is 232 goes to the president's desk in, in mid-April, and then there should be a, a final decision in, I believe it's July. Right. Um, so I think that'll that'll be interesting validating point for the cycle, and then we'll continue to see Japan turning reactors back on. So they turned their ninth one on. Um, it was around October timeframe last year. Uh, they had 53 pre Fukushima. And, um, depends on who you talk to. Somewhere around 40 or so in total are going to come back online. So that's you know roughly another, another about another 10 a year for the next three years. So if we can you know we continue to see. Japan turning them back on because these are big, serious reactors. Uh, Japan had 20% of the electricity supplied from nuclear energy pre-Fukushima, um, and now it's all out of its gas power. So they're looking to get off of that and back to back to nuclear energy. So um, the other thing would be, you know, Kazataprom and Chemical being kind of two of the bigger players in the marketplace. Uh, Kazataprom's guided the market to say we'll be controlling inventory release to a Fifty to sixty dollar term price. Um, so I'd like to see those things kind of play out more. Um, but you know, it's certainly there's a lot of strong fundamental reasons, including new financial buyers in the spot market, um, that this first half of the year probably sets in a little bit stronger, and then I think the second half of the year could be game on if, if we're if we're sitting strong. In this first right. Half. Yeah, I know. I know Yellow Cake has another option to buy more from Cazetta Prom here uh, this month. I think they have to exercise it this month, if, if I recall, or at least the, the period to exercise starts this month. And then I think right. total globally, uh, uh, including Japan, I think there's somewhere between expectations of between 10 and 15 reactors uh, being commissioned or being restarted uh, total uh, in 2019. Mm. So it's it's a pretty good number that's coming on uh, this year and also next year uh, of course it continues to go up from there um, but yeah I, I think that the the long-term contracting is going to be key so let's get 232 off the desk and then uh, we can move on to seeing who's going to be the first one who's going to get their feet wet uh, in the market and uh, so I think, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's looking pretty good so I think you know 20, 2020 is going to be exciting 2019 certainly and and then after that uh, it's going to be uh, really interesting um, so moving on to, to lithium, what is your view of the lithium market at this stage and where do you see the price going? And with that, does, does the lithium asset at pl uh, Plateau, uh, Falchani, uh, does, does Plateau see that as kind of an equal uh, to the uh, Macusani project or is it kind of just a supplemental project at this point? Sure. Um, well, maybe I'll start with the last question first. Um, so I believe we're, we're getting roughly 50-50 valuation in our marketplace today for our lithium projects and our uranium projects. Um, as we advance the lithium project, uh, we'll be looking to do a resource update in later Q1 of this year. Um, we're de-risking it from a metallurgical perspective. We're, we're hiring a lead engineer for the for the PEA. Once we have some economic parameters around the project, I think it's it's, there's a good chance it's going to be equal or surpass the, the net present value of our uranium project that we have out there today. Um, so 
so until we have those economics, it's hard to give you an exact answer on that. But um, as a as a commodity itself, we're looking technically not a commodity, but um, as an industrial metal itself, um, I can see that the size of our asset, um, we, we've already demonstrated through the drilling and the results we put out that we've expanded it. Now we need to do the resource update to incorporate that expansion drilling that we have a, like I said earlier, a multi-generational asset. So we have an asset that could cost 30, 40, 50 plus years and be a significant contributor to the overall supply side of the equation. Um, so, and, and why it's different than, you know, a brine project and similar to a hard rock project, but also similar to a brine project is it's classic mining on the front end. And the processing side is gonna be much more like a, more like a brine. Um, but I think that's important to keep in mind because I think because we are classic mining, um, we control the mining rate. So our ability to scale up as the market grows uh, could is why I think it could be a significant contributor to the overall marketplace. And and the market's very quickly evolving um, for 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 battery metals as a whole, and for lithium in particular. We we passed the million electric vehicles mark. Uh, last year, we're, we're seeing strong growth. We've seen um, the incentives in China for pure electric vehicles increasing this year. And the market is uh, it's growing at some, something around 25% a year out to 2025. And then it nearly doubles again by 2028 and, and then beyond. And, and those are on reasonable, um, reasonable electric vehicle adoption assumptions. And... When it, as it gets to that point in time, um, I believe that uh, the marketplace, like we've seen in every other commodity, um, is going to focus on assets that can be, uh, you know, a significant part of that demand picture. So if we can scope out a project that starts off reasonable relative to the size of the market today and can expand with that marketplace and maintain a significant market share, it's going to be a very valuable and desirable asset. So some background on, this, on, on the split between the two, but management-wise, we're focused on both assets because they're both fantastic assets. They hold a lot of value for the company. We have more work to do on lithium because it hasn't had as much work done on it relative to the uranium, but, um, but they're of equal importance for us from, from a management perspective. Um, so if we switch gears and going back to your first question, the lithium market itself, um, I'm really excited about the lithium market when I look at the, the, the mid and long-term outlooks uh, from a demand perspective are, are very robust, I believe. Um, we, we are seeing a part of the early stages of an electric revolution. Um, I mean, this is, this is going from horse and cart to, to Model T Fords. Um, I honestly believe that. And we've got governments around the world not only pushing this agenda, but we've got consumers pushing it. And, and in the U.S., it's a large part of its consumer driven. And, you know, I think we have to thank Tesla for really forcing the hand of all the car manufacturers around the world because they're now announcing and they have announced billions of dollars of investments in electric vehicles. And so it's not far away before, you know, VW, I think, is 2025, 100% electric. And you'll be able to buy a Golf or, or be Ford or Chevy or whatever it happens to be. Um, we'll have affordable cars. We'll have mass market cars that are electric, electrified. And so that's really why it's part of a revolution. And, and uh, I was listening to a talk at a conference uh, last year, and, and the person was saying that 
you know, this is similar to when the first Motorola cell phone was, was made. And everybody thought there's no chance this is going to be mass adopted. Not everybody's going to have a cell phone. And the talk time is 20 minutes. Well, it kind of equates in a lot of ways to what we're seeing in electric vehicles is that we haven't had mass adoption yet, but we're, we're, we're getting towards that point. And there's going to be this inflection point where it becomes exponential. And I think arguably we could say cell phone adoption is 100% now. And, um, and it didn't take long to get to quite a significant percentage of adoption by the time uh, you had longer, longer lasting batteries and it was more readily accessible to the mass market. And that's what we're seeing in the, in the electrification of vehicles. So I think what we have though in the short term is uh, I'll characterize it as noise. So late 2017, um, there's this, this spot market in China for lithium carbonate. And although it only represents 10% of the actual volume of, uh, of, of battery grade lithium traded, um, it was the only proxy investors had to how healthy that market was having because the rest of the market's all settled with supply contracts. And the supply contract market has more or less been fairly steady throughout 2018. But the spot market in China ran from, you know, call it $10,000 a ton of lithium carbonate equivalent up to north of $20,000 a ton and then corrected back down to, uh, I mean, it bottomed down to around just above $10,000 a ton and trading in around 11,000 now. But all of the, the, you know, the serious, the big producers globally, um, majority of them are supply contract base and they're, they're getting 12, 13, 14, 15, $16,000 a ton. So that softening in the spot market hits and being the only barometer investors can look at, that hit the sentiment pretty hard and that caused a lot of the lithium equities to pull back last year. But right. I don't think any, anyone can say the demand side is, is um is not real it's happening um and uh and, and will start to fall in place quite quickly i believe um and then the other thing that softened expectations or sentiment last year um, was fear of oversupply and fear that some of the big brine producers were going to simply be able to you know pump more pump more uh brine solution and um and, and produce more and what we actually saw was um the opposite of that, they weren't able to expand, um, partly because they weren't able to get expansion permits, partly because they're pulling water, fresh water, after they evaporate. It's a long evaporation process, about 18 months. They take the salt crystals and they process them and they reintroduce fresh water. Well, when you're at 4,000 meters elevation on a, on a salt flat, uh, so fresh water is a, is a hot commodity and it's being used by other people in the area for agriculture and other mining, uh, copper mines and things like that. And so water restrictions seem to be a theme, certainly in the Florida Atacama last year, started to be a theme in the second half of the year. So um, as a result of that, what we saw was uh, SQM, world, one of the world's largest uh, you know, lithium producers, Albemol, another very large lithium producer, go across the pond to Australia and tie up big hard rock assets because hard rock mining is more predictable and more scalable, generally speaking, right. than a brine project. And so that's why I think thematically, we take our, our calcium lithium project, we grow it and we get past the, uh, the two to three million ton space that we're in now into an area where there's, there's not as many assets that meet that size threshold. We demonstrate some robust economics on it um, this year. 
and I think it's going to stand out on the on the world scale. Okay, well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll save some some comments just to keep it uh, brevity, uh, but you know, certainly with China having uh, government policies that are coming into place to enforce electric vehicles and so forth, that is certainly positive for the market. And can I, uh, before I get to my other question here, can I can I characterize your view as realistically at this point, lithium lithium is stable going forward, but uranium has more upside. I would say that's fair. I think we've had two runs in lithium, three runs in lithium uh, over the years. I think that um, hanging in around here at this level is a, is a positive thing. I think um, the first half of the year might be just a little bit soft. I don't see any significant um, drops in price. I'd say soft. And I think the second half of the year is going to be a really telling sign about whether the price starts to move back up again because um, any of the kind of additional supply concerns don't fall into place. So we already, we already saw supply, oversupply um, be less of a concern last year, even though at the start of the year it was a big concern. By the end of the year, it never happened. Nobody ever met their targets. And, uh, and I think we'll see that play out through the first half of this year. And so I think the second half of the year will be stronger for lithium as a, in terms of a, the price of the metal itself. Um, and yeah, with regards to uranium, I think the telltale sign for me, like we were talking about earlier, is going to be term contracts 232, and, and 232 more as a um, um, kind of that trigger point, if you will, for uh, the U.S. utilities to start to lock down supply. And um, and 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 I'll be convinced we're in a longer term commodities run for the uranium market if we if we keep this momentum up that we saw second half of last year and we keep that up through the first half of this year and then see some term yeah. contracts get signed. Yeah, and this this time has certainly been a little bit more slow and steady. Um, so so moving moving back talking talking about the lithium project. So um, there's been a there's been a little bit of a uh, occurrence of companies spinning out assets, separating separating maybe non-core assets or separating different minerals. So examples, uh, mm -hmm. Lumina spends out Luminex. Uh, Injex uh, proposed in December, they're going to spin out their, I think uh, they have a property uh, really close together, but one's in Argentina, one's in Chile. Uh, they're spinning uh, one of their copper projects out because of the jurisdiction difference. Um, and then also uh, Equinox, uh, spinning out uh, sol Solaris copper, uh, spinning out copper mm -hmm. assets from gold assets. Uh, is is that is there an idea that for potential suitors of your guys' lithium project, is there this consideration that maybe a suitor would be more interested if the projects were separated and, what, and, and the lithium assets spun out? Yeah, no, it's a... Um... It's a, it's a good question, Andrew, because I think there is a, um, a strategic review that um, certainly I've been thinking of and we've been discussing internally is, is we have, you know, oftentimes we have uranium-focused investors and we have lithium-focused investors. And um, today, investors that, you know, are interested in our opportunity, our company, um, they, see the, they see the value here. But clearly the two assets are worth more than what the market cap is saying. Um, so they see it as a value opportunity. And what we'll be focused on is I'd like to get our lithium project first through an economic study before I uh, consider 
any kind of separation of the, the two assets. And, and really the reason for that is because I don't want to spin something out that's not going to have its own market support because it's, it's an asset at a stage that deserves that market support, if you know what I mean. So rather than spin something out prematurely, let's, uh, let's put some value on the table for, for the shareholders. Let's then determine what the best next step is. Is it a spin out of lithium? Is it a spin out of uranium? Is it a, is it a, an asset sale? Is it a joint venture? Um, I would like to find some, some dedicated capital certainly to move our uranium project forward because um, it deserves to be moved forward to feasibility study. And I think it is one of those assets when you look around the world at, at where the different development assets are. Uh, we've got a lot of government support to see it move forward. We've got something we can fast track to feasibility in 18 months. Um, so, so that really should be moved forward quickly. And um, and meanwhile, you know, we've got uh, we've got things we can do with our lithium project. But certainly, it's um, it, it's conversation and it's considerations we have internally, and the right timing of that and the right way to do that um, is is things that we need to work through through 2019. Um, but it absolutely makes sense to have some way of uh, advancing each project with separate pieces of capital. And, and as you point out, ultimately, any suitor for either asset ideally wants one or the other, not both. That's right. Yeah. So, so uh, on on kind of that same same line, just a little bit. So with the lithium asset being, uh, you know, 25 kilometers away, um, is there is there an idea that that uh, the the production, the the plants, et cetera, would be centralized, or do you see these? Because getting into my next question, do you see these? You're doing separate PEAs um, for each of these assets, or you have for for the uranium asset. Um, are you seeing these basically standalone at this point, or do you see some kind of centralization happening? Well, I think in the future, absolutely, um, there's there's synergies between the two assets. So from a from a, a, a National Instrument 43101 perspective for PEAs, we have to treat them as two separate assets. We can talk about opportunities with the synergies, but we can't actually include those in any of the economics. But you know, if you step back for a second, you've got two assets, as you point out, 25 kilometers apart. Um, why wouldn't you have a shared camp, uh, shared maintenance shop? shared um, uh, excess supplies and um, a variety of things, exploration camp, um, fuel, et cetera, in a centralized location that benefits both operations. So that could actually add up to a significant amount of capital that you could save and operating costs. Right. Okay. So, so tell us uh, on the studies, uh, what's, what's the next upcoming study and when do you have, when do you plan on having that out? Sure. So we will um, we'll continue to see drill results coming out over the next uh, couple of months um, on this expansion drilling. All of that is being brought into uh, a resource update. So that'll be an update, like in terms of a technical report on the lithium project. Uh, that'll be late Q1, most likely for the resource update. And then we'll, a PEA for the targeted for the end of the first half of 2019. We'll have um, metallurgical results along the way and optimization work to talk about. And then with regards to the uranium project, um, a, we'll, we'll update the PEA if uh, the optimization work shows positive. So anybody following what we're doing, looking for news in sort of April, May timeframe on the outcome of that optimization work on the uranium. If it shows positive, 
it's uh, we believe it has a positive impact on the overall economics of the project. And so we would want to update the PEA and call it Q3, Q4 in 2019. And then we've got a new a new sort of established a new value perspective, a new line in the sand that we take that through the feasibility study. Okay. So give me again, this question always comes, uh, can you give me an all-in sustaining cost, maybe the high-end ballpark or rough figure of what you think the lithium project uh, production scenario would look like as far as a uh, uh, lithium price? I really wish I could answer that question. <laughs> um, okay. We're not there okay. yet. Right? We have our we well, have answer. A out for us. Okay, well, answer this one. Um, uh, on, on the, on the uh, we talked earlier about uranium offtakes. How about lithium offtakes? Is there is there a desire to go after that potentially? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So lithium supply agreements, um, a bit bit early to sign up supply agreements, but not too early to find strategic partners that um, that might want to ultimately have a supply agreement with us. So again, in 2019, it'll really be once we get um, that PEA out and established and it, we can effectively market to the world that we've got this project. Um, it'll be ongoing conversations throughout the first half of the year and, and reaching out to various groups, um, these strategic kind of groups and having these conversations. And then I think on the back of a, of a robust PEA, then it's, it's the kind of conversation that can then turn towards something a little more concrete. Um, until we have something uh, in an economic study, and I think it's unlikely someone will commit um, unless you know they 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 really see the, the project for what we think it is. Um, right. But what I often find is people like to wait until a little bit more of that technical information is secure. Um, but having that those strategic conversations is critical, and um, and the second half of the year will probably be more productive conversations on that basis, leading us into 2020, where I hope that. Um, We'd be able to talk about, you know, someone from a strategic angle. Right. Okay. So, uh, why should investors be taking a stake in Plateau today? What would you say to the potential investors thinking about getting into Plateau at this point? Sure. Well, um, you know, firstly, we had a, a good run up last year on the back of the discovery and some more positive sentiment in uranium. Um, in December, we we. Unfortunately, we're exposed to tax loss selling, which I'm not sure if that's the thing in the U.S., but in Canada, people offset gains against losses on stock positions and people in pot stock at $20 and up. Uh, sitting around 70, 75 cents Canadian today. Um, so, you know, we're trading in a range where I think we're bottoming out here. Um, part of my objective, uh, you know, over the first 12 months that, since joining are to get broader market awareness not only institutionally, but also with high net worth and investors and uh, and brokers across a much broader spectrum. Um, you know, we I'd like to get the company to have four or five core sponsors um, supporting our stock. And what I mean by that is we're at two today with with Haywood and Eight Capital. But um, I'd like to see that expand. And and as we hit these milestones throughout time, these are these are significant value events in the company. Um, so I think, you know, every company suffered from a bit of liquidity, lack of liquidity, I should say, um, in uh, kind of the second half of Q4. Um, we're, we're hanging in here price-wise around this range, and we've got uh, project-wise a lot of value to, to put on the table in the next six months. So um, I think for investors that want to take a closer look, um, 
I, I see I see a lot of value in the stock and in and where we're going over the next little period of time here. Uh, so, Alex, uh, how can investors reach out to the company for more information? Uh, so investors can uh, like to email in and, and, and can look to get response to some questions or arrange a time for a phone call. They can email um, ir at plateauenergymetals.com. And, uh, and certainly that's probably the best place to start. And uh, I'm happy to speak with investors, um, obviously traveling a lot and in between things, but I do have someone um, helping out on the, uh, as part of our investor relations side. That can uh, that can answer questions and get back to someone. And and your website. Our website is www.plateauenergymetals.com, okay. and uh, you can find fact sheets, our corporate presentation, and and our news releases, etc. There. Alex, we appreciate your time. Uh, good luck, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it.